Amen. Thank you. All right, Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, we're going to start there in verse number 1. We'll cover the first seven verses here this evening, Lord willing. The introduction to the epistle. It says, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated unto the gospel of God, which he had promised afore by his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, which was made of the seed of David according to the flesh, and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead, by whom we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name, among whom... Uh, are ye also the called of Jesus Christ to all that be in Rome, beloved of God, called to be a saint, grace to you, and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. <clears throat> Let's go ahead and pray. Father in heaven, Lord, I ask your, uh, your help and, and your blessing on the message, Lord. I pray that it would strengthen your people, Lord, that it would draw us closer to you. Lord, control what I say and how I say it. Please use this, Lord, to meet the needs that are here. Help me to stay true to your word. And, Lord, I pray that, again, this would be a help. Lord, if there's anyone here who has never truly been converted, Lord, I certainly do pray that even tonight that conviction and that drawing would occur, Lord, and they would put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray and ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. All right. Um, When studying for this, I came across a uh, story about D.L. Moody. And it uh, doesn't quite fit with the message, so I'm just going to lead off with it anyhow, because I liked it. And, uh, but he was given an address one time in Chicago. He was preaching in Chicago. And uh, at, at the, at, once he had finished this sermon, this highly educated man came to him, it said. And he said, and he went up to him, there's direct, direct quotes of the conversation. It said, sir, excuse me, but you made 11 mistakes in your grammar tonight. You can see why I'm going here with this. <laughs> Mr. Moody said, I probably did. You see, my early education was very limited and faulty. I went to public school. But I'm using all the grammar that I know for the cause of Christ. How about you? I thought that was pretty good. Anyhow, now on to the message now that I got my grammar thing covered here tonight. Uh, Paul is, of course, remember last week we did the overview of this book of how important it is. Paul is on his third missionary journey when he's writing this. He is sitting in Corinth which, again, as we're going through the book of Acts, where he's going to be coming down onto Corinth here shortly once he leaves uh, uh, Philippi with all that's going to be taking place. And, but anyhow, so he's sitting in Corinth, and he sends this letter to the church that is at Rome. It was a place he desired to go to strongly. He wanted to get there. Little do I think that Paul realized what God was doing when he had him pen this epistle and, and how important it would be in all of church history, um, in, in the lives that it would change, in the, in the mass changes it would bring about at different times. It really is an incredible book. The importance of this epistle is of the highest. It is a book that will ground you solidly in your faith, and it will definitely change your life. Today, as we dive into the introduction, 
In these first seven, first seven verses of chapter 1, really, Paul gives the foundation of the entire epistle, almost an overview himself of what is coming in the book. As you can see by the wording of it, he focuses in on the gospel of Christ. And we're going to see that there today. We're going to see from the gospel of Christ all that it means for us, from the Old Testament to our salvation, which is by grace, uh, um, and how he has saved us, and the gospel of God. The term is used by Paul in his writing 60 times. 60 times he gives that. Now, in coming into this, um, I, I was thinking about this. I think, I think so often we get used to the word gospel and how we use it. I think we use it way too cavalier. So before we get into today's message, since it's about the gospel of God, the gospel of Christ, we almost have to remove our presuppositions. Uh, we have to try and make it as if, as if in your mind you're hearing the word for the first time. Because it seems, because of how we've used it just over and over and over, attaching titles to it and this to it, it's, it's as if it's without much meaning as it should have. If Paul, especially in the book of Romans, is stressing it, there's something to it. <clears throat> so... Let's try and make it as if this is the first time we're learning about this word and hearing the gospel. Which, of course, we know the word means good news. And the, and the truth is, it is the best news possible. I mean, think about what it, what it stands for. I mean, man literally had no help in himself since the fall that took place in the garden. All who would be born on this earth after that were, were of no, no help. There was nothing they could do on their own to produce a salvation, to produce a reconciliation back to their creator. It was impossible. Death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. There was nothing we can do about it. Man was separated from God. A veil was put in place that man could never get through leaving us to face an eternal judgment. That, that was true of every single person who was born. Just think about that. Every single person who was born. Their biggest problem wasn't if they were born into poverty. It wasn't if they were born in Ethiopia or Somalia or Egypt or Saudi Arabia. That's not the biggest problem they face. It isn't. The fact is that they're born into this world with this sin nature, with absolutely nothing in and of themselves that can produce a reconciliation back to the Creator. Remember, there is a Creator, and He's what life is all about. Outside of that perspective, nothing else matters. It is the Gospel, the best news that shows how to get back to God. You see, even though man had no help, we have that famous statement, but God. He made a way to tear that veil in half. He made a way for man to be reconciled back to God, to escape an eternal judgment. Romans focuses on that and the result of how that should change our life. Truly, there is no better news than that. It takes care of man's biggest problem. And that is not an exaggeration at all. Think about that. The biggest problems that you are facing tonight, Pale in comparison. As Paul would say it, he doesn't care what you're facing. Know what he would call it? A light affliction. Because the biggest problem that you truly had has been taken care of in Christ. You see, it's kind of like, think about this right now. Think about the biggest problem you are facing. And somebody came to you with a perfect answer for it. Would you not consider that really good news? Would you not? 
I mean, right now, if somebody came to McDonald's, we can solve all the problems with Caleb just like that. And they could. That would be really good news. If somebody could come in and you say, you know what? I know exactly what America needs. We're going to put this politician in place, and it's going to work. That would be good news. Yeah. But think about that. That would be amazing, would it not? It doesn't even touch the good news of the gospel. So what if, if three-quarters of a billion people get to live in this country and have prosperity and everything great and freedom, and they die and go to hell? What did it matter in the end? Nothing. Nothing. There is no news that compares to the gospel. We have that. So Paul starts out in his introduction getting right into the gospel. He's going to cover it in three ways. I'm going to put this in three ways if you want to write this down. He's going to, we're going to cover the proclaimer of the gospel, the prediction of the gospel, and the person of the gospel. <clears throat> so let's begin to dive into this here this evening. First off, verse 1, the proclaimer of the gospel. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated unto the gospel of God. He is the proclaimer of it. Paul lets the church know at Rome who he is. When he starts this letter off, remember, he's never been to Rome. He wants to get there. He says, listen, the person that's writing into you, I, this is who I am. He refers to himself in three different ways. As a servant, a called apostle, and separated for the gospel. These three things, how Paul describes himself, we need to see those same three aspects to be effective in our own life if we're going to be effective with the gospel. He's giving right there in that simple first verse. I, I almost did this the entire sermon just in the first verse. But then I thought I would be in Romans until 2047 would be my best guess. But I could. I, I have enough right here just to preach the entire message easily just on verse 1. He is right here. The Lord is giving us, remember, God's spirit is controlling us, what we need to be effective with in the gospel. It's more important than you having a Ph.D. in theology. I'm going to put all three as B's. The importance of being a bond service beckoned by God and making the gospel our business. That's how Paul described himself. It's certainly what we need as well if we're going to be effective proclaimers of the gospel. First off, he described himself as a servant. The word is for a bondservant. We see the rules for a bondservant are found in Exodus chapter 21, verses 5 and 6. For time's sake, I don't think I'm going to turn there and read that tonight. But Exodus 21, it was a bondservant. What was to happen? This was the servant who basically said of his own volition, I still want to be a slave. But I want to serve my master not for pay, not out of fear. Not out of duty. Not for any other reason outside of the fact and that I love him. And they would take him. They, they'd actually go before judges in the city. They would, then they would take, they would actually drill a hole right into his ear. So everybody would know this was a person who chose of his own volition. No, I want this. Paul is saying, I have chosen my own volition out of love that I am going to serve God. And think of what this would say in Paul's day. Think of that, how that would be represented between the Greeks and the Roman culture, for that matter, and how they treated slaves. Do you understand that between Greek and Roman culture, if you wanted to kill your slave, you could? 
Throughout the Bible, you think about this, key men were called servants or slaves. Joshua, Abraham, Moses, David, Isaiah, of course, even the Lord Jesus Christ. So this is what Paul is expressing. He's saying, I'm a bondservant. I serve out of love. This isn't for pay. This isn't out of a sense of duty. It is the love of Christ which constraineth me, which is the ultimate motivation for our service to God. When it comes to the gospel, when it comes to our service, it needs to be out of love. Not because we have to, not because it's culture, not out of fear, not because mom and dad said so, not because I get paid, but because I understand who the creator is, I understand what he did for me, and I have love for him. I want to serve him. I mean, you think about it today, even those who claim to want to serve Christ, it's like, it's like they want to get as far away from God while still being servants. It's incredible. Why not see how close you can get to him? And in this, you think about this, this shows two key things that the Lord has looked for since the beginning of time. Love for him, the greatest commandment, and humility. If you're going to be effective and good at proclaiming the gospel, love needs to be ultimate motive with humility. Not only did he say he was a bondservant, but he also mentioned he was called to be an apostle. He was beckoned by God. Now, we certainly know that Paul was an apostle with the capital A, if you will. Okay, You had the twelve and the apostle Paul. The word itself just simply means sent one. But it's also used in Scripture in authoritative sense when in regards to the twelve and Paul. It appears 78 times in the New Testament. And far and away, the majority of those times, it's referring to the twelve or Paul. But there are certainly are times when it refers to the, the regular use of the word sent one. <clears throat> And the truth is, we are all led by God to be an apostle. We are all sent by God to reach this world. To bring the gospel. Right now, God Almighty in His sovereignty has you in Anchorage, Alaska. Has you in the valley. You're here, beckoned by God. We have that command given to us that we are to reach the world with this news. Paul said, I recognize this just isn't something that I chose. There's a call of God that goes with this. We have the same thing. We have, we have that same beckon of God, that same command of God on our life. If we're going to be effective with the gospel, we've got to understand. Listen, this is a call of God. This is a command of God. None of us, of course, are apostles in the sense of the twelve. No one is today. I know you have those churches out there that like to claim, I'm apostle so-and-so, like their direct line from it. That's nonsense. Scripturally, to be a biblical, the apostle, you had to be called directly by Jesus Christ and have witnessed uh, uh, the resurrected Christ personally. That was required. And they were given special uh, ability for miracles and wonders to prove what they were preaching and teaching because the New Testament wasn't even finished yet. So Paul said, I'm a bond service. I'm doing this out of love. This is a calling of God. And then he said, I am separated unto the gospel of God. In other words, it was his business. The word separated has the idea of being set apart, 
just like used in Exodus chapter 13 when God wanted the firstborn set apart for him. Now that firstborn, you know what that is? That's us, the redeemed. Paul recognized, I am set apart for the gospel. For this news that this world needs to hear. This was his true business. If we're going to be effective proclaiming the gospel, we need to see it as our business. We need to be able to tell others. When is the last time you have led someone to the Lord? And I'm not talking this cheap. Please don't go out here and do that and, and, and go run somebody through Romans Road in 30 seconds so you can say you led somebody to the Lord. But I mean effectively presented the gospel. And if, it's, if you actually see it and view it, every single one of us, as your business, your approach to it would be different. You would, if it's your business, you want to know how to do it and how to do it right. Right now, I, I don't see him here, but I, I know Doc Martin. He's an eye surgeon. He's an eye surgeon. That's his business. Is that right? Where's Roger sitting out there right now. Would you go to Roger for your eye surgery? Why not? It's not his business. I'm not sure what will you go to Roger for. I'm trying to think of it right now, Roger. I'm not sure, buddy. When something is your business, you know it. You know it. Listen, if you leave here with anything tonight, leave here with the idea that the gospel, you're separated unto the gospel. It's your business. God is providing for many of us in different ways right now with our employment. That's what your employment is. Your business is the gospel. That's your calling that should be out of love. <clears throat> there are many people who know, by the way, that they are servants, that even are aware of God's call in relation to the gospel, but they're not separated unto it. They're not willing to make it their business. You'll never be effective until you do. You'll never be effective until you do. Secondly, now, this is just a simple verse, verse number two. Let me read in context with verse 1. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separate into the gospel of God, which he had promised before by his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. This, too, I thought about making its own sermon. But again, I would be here a really long time. But this, this, is, this is incredible. These are things that, that I really enjoy and get, can get passionate about in the Word of God. Because it just amazes me. Paul's saying, by the way, this thing of the Lord Jesus Christ, this gospel, it's been throughout the Old Testament. This isn't anything new. Paul now telling how the gospel and Christ, is, who is central to the gospel, has been prophesied, it's been predicted well before. It's throughout the Old Testament. Even when Christ came preaching, remember, he talked about how he was fulfilling the Old Testament. He talked about how he was in the Old Testament. He would, he would be preaching about the, uh, from the kingdom, and, and the people wondered, it, what, what, is this a heretic? Is this revolutionary? Is this new? And he would stress, no, it isn't. You just forgot. You just don't know the scriptures anymore. John chapter 5, verse 39, he says, search the scriptures. Let him know that he's there. There they would speak of me on the road to Emmaus. He, after the resurrection, opening the scriptures, he spoke of the things concerning himself, beginning at Moses and the prophets. He showed them, I'm throughout. 
It's here. Truly, we see in the Old Testament Christ in the gospel in everyone. I don't know if I can, if I can do this, but I'm going to try this right now. You can see Christ again in every single book in the Old Testament. In Genesis, he's the promised seed of the woman. In Exodus, he's the Passover land. In Numbers, he's the pillar of cloud by day, the fire by night. In Leviticus, he's the high priest. In Deuteronomy, uh, uh, he is the prophet like unto Moses. Joshua, he's the captain of our salvation. Judges, he is the true judge and the lawgiver. Ruth, he is the kinsman redeemer. Ezra, he is that priest that is proclaiming liberty and truth to the captives. Nehemiah, he is the repairer of broken down walls. In Job, he is the living redeemer. In Psalms, he's our sun and shield. In Proverbs, he's our wisdom. In Ecclesiastes, he's the meaning of life. In Song of Solomon, he is our beloved fair one. In Isaiah, he's the suffering servant. In Jeremiah, he's the balm in Gilead. And Lamentations, he's the one outside the city in chapter 1, saying, is it nothing to you all ye that passed by? In Ezekiel, he's the coming king in chapter 21. In Daniel, he's the fourth one in the fire. In Hosea, he's that faithful husband that is redeeming back his wife. In Joel, he is the one sending his spirit among the people. In Amos, he is delivering justice to the oppressed. In Obadiah, he is mighty to save. In Jonah, he is the true foreign missionary. In Micah, he is that messenger with the beautiful feet. In Habakkuk, he is the one who crushes injustice. In Zephaniah, he is the savior. In Zephaniah, Habakkuk, yeah, in, in, yeah, that's right. Habakkuk, Zephaniah, he is the savior. In Haggai, I'm going to get this and see if we can write it down. In Haggai, he is the restorer. In uh, Zechariah, he is the pierced Messiah. And in Malachi, he is the son of righteousness with healing in his wings. And by the way, we can go through those again in a different aspect in each one of those books of what Christ is. He is throughout the Old Testament. It's what it's all about. That's what Paul's saying. That's what Christ was saying. It's what the whole message is about. Here's a quote when I was reading from one of the commentators on Christ in the Old Testament. He said, I find my Lord in the Bible wherever, wherever I chance to look. He is the theme of the Bible, the sinner and heart of the book. He is the rose of Sharon. He is the lily fair. Wherever I open my Bible, the Lord of the book is there. He is at the, uh, he's at the book's beginning, uh, gave to the earth its form. He is the ark of shelter, bearing brunt of the storm, the burning bush of the desert, the budding of Aaron's rod. Wherever I look in the Bible, I see the Son of God, the ram upon Mount Moriah, the ladder from earth to sky, the scarlet cord in the window, and the serpent lifted high, the smitten rock in the desert, the shepherd with staff and crook, the, uh, the face of my Lord, I discover wherever I look in the book. He is the seed of the woman, the Savior, virgin born. He is the Son of David, whom man rejected with scorn. His garments of grace and of beauty, they stately Aaron's deck, yet he is priest forever, for he is Melchizedek, Lord of eternal glory, whom John the Apostle saw, light of the golden city, lamb without spot or flaw, bridegroom coming at midnight, for whom the virgins look. Wherever I open my Bible, I find my Lord in the book. He did a really good job of that, much better than I just did. The entire purpose of the Bible was the gospel. What man needed to hear. 
Even all the sacrifices that were done before Calvary were simply pictures, shadows of what was to come in the Lord Jesus Christ. Everything about man's redemption, all of it, from going all the way back, it, this is, it, it's, about, it's, it's either a demonstration of it, telling us how God was doing it, when it was going to take place. It's throughout. Even throughout the Old Testament, God constantly used imagery in the lives of real people to demonstrate the gospel. Christ being the ark of our salvation, the only way. Man under judgment and condemned. Or, or, or that ram in the thicket when, when, he, when Abraham went to sacrifice Isaac. And all of a sudden, there was a substitute there. Of course, the Passover, the kinsman redeemer, and one of my favorite, Hosea, going back to purchase his wife out of slavery. He was used up and done. The Old Testament is filled with the Lord Jesus Christ. How anybody can question this as the Word of God is just absurd. And then thirdly tonight, we have the person of the gospel. Verse 3 through 7. Concerning his son, Jesus Christ our Lord, which was made of the seed of David according to the flesh and declared to be the son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead, by whom we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name. Among whom you are also the called of Jesus Christ, to all that be in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints, grace to you, peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now when it comes to the gospel, he has already established the, the, the proclaimer of it. He has described, he's already said how this has been predicted. We've seen the prophecy of it in the Old Testament. And now he gets into the very person of it, the heart of the gospel. And that, of course, being the Lord Jesus Christ. And he breaks this down into two different ways. Basically, who he is and what he provides. And in who he is, he covers two aspects of it that are incredibly important. How he is man and he is God. All at the same time. Concerning his son, Jesus Christ our Lord, which was made of the seed of David according to the flesh. The Lord Jesus Christ, when he became man, was 100% man. He was of the lineage of David through both Mary and Joseph, by the way. The good news is this, that God became a man. You say, well, I don't, I don't understand. We needed, a, we needed a second Adam, which he's going to get into, by the way. We start getting into chapter 5. Ah, the second Adam. Man had to have that. Man had to have somebody who could fulfill the law. Man had to, had to have somebody who could live a life of perfection as a man. We had to have at least one person who could actually fulfill righteousness. It was impossible on our own. So he had to become a man. We needed the second Adam. To quote from one commentator, I use his words again because they're so much better than mine. He said that he might become one of us according to the flesh, that he might have the perfect humanness, that he might be a sympathetic high priest, that he might be a sucker to, uh, 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 to be able to, uh, uh, let me go on, that he might understand us, that he might be at all points tipped like as we are yet without sin, that he might be a man who could die for men, who would take the place of men, who could substitute for men, who could bear the brunt of God's wrath for men. 
If he doesn't become a man, we have no hope. None. People really just get in their head, well, all you got to do is say you're sorry. God, forgive me. They forget God is holy and just. What you're thinking isn't possible. You have no hope. You are in a sinful condition before a holy and righteous God with no hope. God has to become a man. We have to have somebody that's a man yet outside of us that could fulfill it. He also had to be the perfect man, the right man to fulfill biblical prophecy. He had to be of the tribe of Judah, of Judah, of the lineage of David, born of a virgin. David's family was the one that God set up for the, the right to rule and reign in Jerusalem. And one day he will be the king of kings, ruling and reigning right from Jerusalem. So God did become a man, the second Adam. In order to make us righteous. But that wasn't enough. He also has to be God. As he says in verse 4. And not only was he human in verse 3. In verse 4 he's God. And declared to be the son of God. That's his deity. With power. According to the spirit of holiness. By the resurrection from the dead. He covers two aspects of his deity right here. The spirit of holiness. By the resurrection from the dead. In order to save us, there's no doubt he would have to be God. Again, this is the good news. God becoming man. He was 100% God and 100% man. If he was not God, it would be impossible for him to handle the wrath of the Father. If he was not God, there is no way he could defeat death and rise again from the dead. If he was not God, he could not overcome. If he was not God, he could not serve as the perfect high priest. It says he is declared to be the Son of God by the Spirit of holiness, the resurrection of the dead. Two things here that Paul brings out, showing us that he is God. Of course, the Spirit of holiness is referring to God, Christ being uh, led by the Holy Spirit. How we, when he was on earth, what he did was, remember what he did. It's incredible to think about what Christ did when he became a man. I mean, you have to think, this is the creator of the universe putting on flesh. And by the way, I was joking with somebody, you have to teach on kenosis. This is what kenosis deals with. That humbling of himself from God to man. And what that had to involve. Do you understand the creator of the universe had to learn to walk? Think about that. There was a, when he was six months old, he was learning vowel sounds. I don't know if all babies start off with vowel sounds. He was learning his vowel sounds. He humbled himself. One reason. To save you. When he was on this earth, because he had humbled himself, we know uh, 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 from the temptation on how he was led of the Spirit, he did what he did by the Spirit of God, but in so doing with what manner this worked, proving he was God by the miracles he did, in God, from controlling the weather, raising the dead, 
uh, forgiving sins, all the miracles, giving the, 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 uh, the, the blind to see, the deaf to hear, all of it proving he was in fact God, and then ultimately the resurrection from the dead. You say, but there were others who rose again from the dead. No, the others were raised by somebody from the dead. Do you understand that? This was just God himself. And besides, he is the one claiming to be the son of God. He was the one the Jews took up stones to stone him when he claimed to be the son, making himself equal with God. So if he's going to make that claim and they crucify him and he doesn't defeat death, he wasn't God. But if he does, he's God. That's all there is to it. He is God. So at the heart of the gospel that we proclaim is the fact that God became a man, the second Adam, who was also God in order to save us. Really, we see his divinity and his humanness throughout his earthly ministry. For instance, here's a great one. You want to see both of them at the exact same time? He's sleeping on the boat because he's worn out. He's out of it. He's done. I'm going to bed. They have to wake him. You see his humanness. They wake him, and then you see his divinity really quick. Like that, he controls the weather. Five and six, we see what he gives. By whom we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name. Among whom are you also the called of Jesus Christ. So all the saints that be in Rome as he finishes his introduction there. This is important. One, he covers briefly, basically in one word, how salvation works, and that is by grace. As we all know, we are saved by grace. It's not by works. It's not anything you do that is unmerited favor. It's not church. It's not baptism. It's not your good works. It's not religion. If you're trusting in anything else other than the Lord Jesus Christ, you are not saved. You are still lost. You are saved by grace. One of the commentators, Dr. Barnhouse, said this about grace. I really like this. He said, love that looks upward is worship. Love that looks outward is affection. And love that stoops is grace. And that's what God did with his grace and love. He stooped to us. And with that, though, as we see what Paul gives them here, he reminds them, by the way, you are called to reach the world. You are. And he uses the term for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name. And that is a great way to word it. Obedience to the faith. You see, you want to know how others recognize our faith? By our works. And by the way, it's getting so easy in America to be different. For others to notice our works. To see, listen, to know there is something different there. Again, if somebody who claims to be saved and they have no works, they're not saved. Works plays no part in your salvation. None. Not at all. But it is proof of salvation. I don't care what you prayed when you were 10 years old. If you have no desire for God and you're not working, you're not converted. 
There's a desire for the Lord. You're not going to be perfect. You're still going to sin. You can even get in a backslidden state. But that pull is there. That desire is there. And we have this call to the world. To reach the world. You know, I I stress a lot God's sovereignty. Because I find it incredible. It's one of the most mind-boggling things to think, Almighty God, how He's perfectly working together the events and governments around the world to the individual lives of almost 7 billion people. Incredible. Think about this, though. Bring that just to you personally, because He knows every hair on your head. Greg, it's not an accident you work at Spinards. And to be honest, it has nothing to do with you being able to provide for your family. As long as you honor God, he'll provide a number of means to provide for your family. But there's people there that they need to see the obedience to the faith and you giving that gospel out. We have the news the world needs to hear. It's this. It's that God became a man to save you. We have that responsibility. Listen, you need to leave here again. Grab some tracks. Pray for that opportunity to talk to somebody. It's not an accident where you work, where God puts you. He's in control. He'll put people right before you all the time. So we see here, in the, and by the way, as I said, this is really foundational to what's coming in the entire epistle. Right here. But we saw what it takes to be a proclaimer of the gospel. How this, the message of the gospel in Christ has been from Genesis through Malachi. And how the person it deals with is the Lord Jesus Christ, God who became a man. And that is the message that we take to the world. And we also live before, before them in obedient life. With heads bowed and eyes closed.